What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 66 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded, pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. Today we're speaking with Lynn Stone. Lynn is an educational linguist and author. She lives and works in Victoria, Australia, where she runs her consultancy and tutoring practice, Lifelong Literacy. Lynn creates research-informed professional development seminars for teachers and other educational professionals and is regularly invited to speak at conferences, school in-service days and on live radio. She also runs masterclasses for teachers with guest speakers from a variety of domains, Her goal is to help teachers awaken linguistic curiosity in their students using creative, engaging tools and strategies that are based upon scientific consensus as to what constitutes best practice. She has three best-selling books, Spelling for Life, Language for Life and Reading for Life, the third of which is the topic of today's discussion. This book, Reading for Life, is a fantastic summary of the science of reading as well as the history of the reading wars and practical advice about literacy instruction more generally too. I just know that listeners are going to love today's discussion. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe to make sure that you get all the updates from me about teaching and learning. That web address again is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and this month I'm excited to share a new format of book from John Cat. You're listening to this podcast, presumably because you find listening to audio content about education both engaging and convenient. Given this, I'm sure that you'll be delighted to hear that John Cat has now made its way into the world of audiobooks. The first two audiobooks available from the John Cat range are Tom Sherrington's The Learning Rainforest and Tom Bennett's Running the Room, two of the most popular titles from the John Cat collection and two excellent books in their own right too. So if you're keen for some behaviour management tips from Tom Bennett on your way to work or some insights from across the spectrum of education from Tom Sherrington, whilst, for example, you're cleaning the house or taking the dog for a walk, then look no further than these two new audiobooks from JCE, available through Audible and other reputable audiobook distributors. A reminder of the usual John Cat discount code of ERRR30, which will give you 30% off all physical books from John Cat UK or John Cat USA, which ships internationally. Just use that code ERRR30 at checkout. And that code will also work for both of my books too, Cognitive Load Theory in Action and Tools for Teachers. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goldman. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast, the ERRR, and it is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. 
If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they're engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 66 of the ERRR podcast with Lynn Stone. Lynn Stone, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks for having me, Ollie. Pleasure, Lynn. First question, if you meet someone new and they say, hi, Lynn, what is it that you do? What's your answer? I've been struggling for many years to find a title for myself. So that's the answer, the short answer. The longer answer is that, you know, I sort of managed to settle on the fact that I'm an educational linguist. That sort of covers all of it. And that means that I write and I speak about education in general, the teaching of literacy specifically. Got it. Very concise. I know you also have a, a centre and things like that, Lynn. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I, I run, I mean, my first job was, was working with children and adults that had difficulty reading and writing. And so that's always been something I've done, but I'm very busy. I have other people do that. So I have a centre where I live and um, we see, you know, we, we sort of have hundreds of children and adults that come through to us who need help with reading and writing. So I, I manage the tutors, the specialist tutors there. And, you know, that's been a huge part of, of what's really influenced me in terms of what I, what I do in other spheres in education. Fantastic. And I'm sure we'll get some more examples from your centre later on and, and your systems of, of instruction later on. Lynn, second question, what do you see as the purpose of school-based education? For me, it can be summed up in one word, and that's freedom. The more you know about how the world works, you know, including your writing system or the writing system of your language, and the more you know about numbers, and the more you know about science and geography and history and the arts, the more free you are to make informed choices. So it, for in, in my view, that's the purpose of school-based education, freedom. That's good. I like it. Thanks for sharing, Lynn. Okay. I think Martin Robinson might have also said freedom, one word. I'll have to go back and listen to that one as well. Lynn, today we're talking about your book. Was it your first book? No, it was actually my third, my third book. But it was it was the first book that was really that wasn't just a kind of manual, right? So the first two books were manuals. They were like, this is how you teach spelling, this is how you teach grammar and syntax. But reading for life wasn't that. So that there are some tips and instructions in there about teaching reading, but a lot of it was to do with the history of reading and and, and why people believe what they believe and that sort of thing. Got it, out of, out of the, the Lynn Stone series, the trilogy so far. Well, that, I mean, that is a good segue into this question, Lynn, which is why did you feel it was necessary for you to write the book, Reading for Life? Well, the reason I write books in general is because I want to learn more about the subject that, uh, you know, that the, the books are looking into. So for me, it's always about processing my thoughts and, and trying to find out more about things that interest me. And so what really interested me in, in the reading arena was at first when I became a practitioner in teaching reading and writing to people who struggled with it, I never thought that there was any controversy. I didn't see any controversy regarding, you know, what it took to get a child to learn to read. And I was actually really fortunate in that because I was in a position where the degree that I had, so that's the degree in linguistics, the study of the structure of language, it absolutely fit. It was fit for purpose in terms of giving children the information that they needed in order to become fluent readers with comprehension. So it was a perfect fit. 
And in my early years, when I was employed in clinics and and uh, settings, you know, clinical settings and speech pathology clinics and that sort of thing, we the children that we encountered, we we all had, you know, my, my, all my peers, we basically had this idea that whoever came in, they would end up readers. They they would become competent in reading, and so there was just there was no controversy. I had I, I was in this world where that's what took place, and we had the tools to bring that about. And and that was, you know, that that was great. And the reason that children struggled, in our view, was because they didn't quite have the brain architecture that helped you to take to it, you know, like a duck to water. So that's fine. But then when I started to go out into private practice and, and on my own, and then I started to train teachers as well, because I came up with all sorts of ideas about, well, you could do this more efficiently this way and so on. And that became training. What I found was that the teachers that I was working with there was a discrepancy. There was a discrepancy between what I assumed everybody knew about reading, right? And what teachers were being told about reading. And that discrepancy actually led to casualties. So it was casualties. I was real. I realized that it was instructional casualties that I was seeing, not just kids who struggled because of their brains. So that then made me think, well, why is that? If we know how to do this stuff, how come people are being taught to do something different? And that's that became right. <laughs> I need to I need to think about this and to think about things I write about things. So that became reading for life. That's awesome, Lynn. And it, it's wonderful to hear how I mean I, I think the books that get written from a real life kind of challenge that people have faced and have seen are often better books because they're really motivated. It's not just someone thinking, oh, I want to write a book. What should I write a book about? It's more the need really comes and it's like someone needs to do something about this. I'm going to write a book. Uh, And that definitely comes through in the pages. From a kind of big picture viewpoint, what does it take for for a young person to learn to read? And you can refer back to the things that they weren't getting in school and these instructional casualties, if, if you see that as re- being relevant in response to this question. Well, in my view, it, it, it sort of depends on the person. I mean, as far as the big picture goes, right, we've got human brains and, and they're remarkably similar. And I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I'm not going to go into, you know, areas of the brain or anything like that. But what we know is that human brains are, are remarkably similar. And they're more similar than they are, different from one another. But there can be slight differences that will make it harder for students to pass through all of the phases that you need to pass through in order to become a fluent reader with comprehension. So people like Linnea Airy have provided uh, like phase models of, of these, you know, the, uh, on a continuum of, of skills that you gain. So, you know, you've got pre-alphabetic and partial alphabetic and full alphabetic and consolidated alphabetic. Those are Linnea Airy stages. So she provides, and other researchers provide frameworks for that. So you've got that. You've got all of this, the phases that you need to go through and gain master and skills that you need to gain mastery with. But there are other factors like exposure to print because, you know, at some point on that journey, you've actually got to look at print, you know, and you've got to learn how to build that processor that will connect to your oral language and that and once that happens and if you've got enough skill in relating sounds to symbols then you can start on a different phase and that's when you actually learn new words through the actual process of reading and that's a fantastic place to be so it takes all of that and it takes years and in some cases it takes a lot of hard work other cases it doesn't so thanks lynn so then you talk you, just then you talked about linear aries work on pre-alphabetic alphabetic and Whatever came after that, I'm not familiar with that work. What was that? What was the final one? Uh, full alphabetic and consolidated alphabetic. So, in an alphabetic writing system, it's all of the things, 
all of the, the, the knowledge that you gain and, and put together to become increasingly automatic and increasingly strategic when you're reading. Got it. You spoke about that. You, were, you talk about linking sound to text and you talked about kind of the benefits and the affordances that come after that and later on in the process. Something in addition in terms of the big picture that you essentially structure your book around in many ways is the big six of literacy instruction. What is the big six, Lynn? It's a framework. Like, like anything, anything theoretical, anything that sort of goes on in people's minds, you can describe that in terms of models and frameworks. So the big six is, is a framework. It's a sort of, it's a model of the essential components, if you like, of what, you know, what, what we have to, what you have to have to be a fluent reader with comprehension. It was actually referred to, or these pillars of literacy, if you like, were referred to as the big five. Uh, no, sorry, the fab five. Let's get the alliteration right. So. We've got the Fab Five, but then Desley Konza, Associate Professor Desley Konza from Edith Cowan University, actually put forward an argument that said, well, oral language is actually a foundational part of this. So it's not just, and we'll go into this further if you wish, but it's not just phonological awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. Underpinning all of that is oral language. So she said, instead of the Fab Five, we should probably call it the Big Six. And, and I think that was a very good idea. So it was so good, I thought that I got her to very kindly write the foreword to the book. <laughs> so that's, that's how the Big Six was coined. <laughs> yeah. Got it. And so let's dive into these a little bit, because I'm sure a lot of listeners have kind of heard to the Big Five or the Fab Five or the Big Six. We need some alliteration for the uh, Big Six as well, don't we? Or the Big Six mentioned, but maybe they're not as familiar with it as they'd really love to be. So let's kind of step through it one by one and start with, as you've mentioned, Lynn, oral language development. Oral language, obviously, the ability to speak. But why is something that you mentioned in your book, why is early intervention so important when it comes to oral language development? Well, if you look at this thing called the oral lexicon, right? So it's like, I, I like to liken it to a pantry, you know, like a, a, a place where you store ingredients so that you can, you can make things. So, so the, your oral lexicon is like all the words and word parts that you can use. And the more of those you have, the more that communication is, is clear to you throughout your academic career. And the more you can translate those words in the, on the page to things that you actually, to words that you already have, to things that you already know, the more you can sort of gain and expand concepts through reading. So it's really important to have words already in your oral lexicon. And, and the job of literacy instructor is to get that oral lexicon also recognizable in print, right? That's what we want to do. We want to transfer it over. Now, if, if you have a, a small if you, if you don't know that many words, it's actually quite difficult for you to pick up reading in, in, a, in, in a sort of rapid, in the rapid way that you need to when you're a novice to reading. So it's important that children expand their oral lexicon as much as possible. And of course, that's something that we don't have a lot of influence over as educators because you're doing this from birth, right? You're putting words into your vocabulary from birth and you're putting word parts, you know, things like, um, well, if there's an S on the end, you can pretty much guarantee that you've got a plural noun or a verb in the third person singular. These are, you know, that's what I mean by word parts. So the more someone is communicated to and with, and the higher the quality of that from birth to six, the better it is for them. The easier it is then to map print onto that. And conversely, if you come to school with a, a sort of diminished oral lexicon, if you, you know, if your oral language, and it's and not just words, but also the way you use language, like 
the language of taking turns and the language of humor and the language of, you know, all of the social interactions that we have, if that's low, you're going to need to build that up to be part of a school community as well. So there's a lot of work that you need to do if it's low. And that's why there are some really successful, there are brilliant initiatives around from speech language professionals and speech language groups that go talk to your child, read to your child, because what you're doing is you're giving them this, you know, ingredients in this pantry so that they can come to school equipped to learn the next bit. Uh, and it's very, very hard to try and, and, and close the gap between those who come to school with lots of words that they already know and those who come to school with, with very few. That gap widens over time and that's known, I think, coined by Steve, uh, Keith Stanovich as the Matthew effect. And it's, a, it's a very real phenomenon in education where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer as time goes on. It's mm, a great point, Lynn. To add to that, I was doing, I was watching a lecture from Professor Pamela Snow because I'm doing one of their La Trobe University's Science of Learning and Reading intermediate courses at the moment. And she said that before school, the greatest contributor to a young person's vocabulary is actually that oral language and terms of talk with, with adults. But once I've started school, and this is kind of where we're heading now, the main contributor to vocabulary building generally once they can read is actually independent reading. So that was really interesting and, and aligns well with kind of the way you were emphasizing terms of talk and discussion with adults for really young children. And for older people as well, I know I've learned a lot of uh, words in uh, discussion with you, Lynn, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, that's mutual, Ollie, so, so there you go. But yeah, look, at, when children arrive at school with a diminished oral lexicon, it makes a teacher's job more hard, but it also makes it more significant. It's really important to try and fill those gaps at the same time as teaching them how to read. It's a huge task. Mm. So that's oral language, and, and I'm sure that for listeners, you know, they would have probably already had a pretty solid idea of what oral language is, what it means, and the fact that it's an important thing. You know, if students have larger vocabularies and, and they can speak speak more fluently uh, and with ease and coherently, then they're probably going to find it easier to read and, and to get on in school and life more generally. The next idea for the Big Six, though, phonological awareness, is perhaps something that listeners may not have heard of, or if they've heard of it, they might, you know, not be a hundred percent sure what exactly is meant by that big, long, scary word. So Lynn, what is phonological awareness? Well, firstly, I'm really, really happy to say that I've got two bits of good news on that. The first bit of good news is that phonological awareness is actually becoming really well known, thank goodness, in circles even that didn't really pay a lot of attention to it before. Phonological awareness is something that people talk about in primary education a lot more. One, one of my jobs, I'm very lucky, is training teachers. And through that, I get to see trends. I, I get to hear what they're talking about. And I get to hear, and I get to survey what they know and what they don't know, what they're familiar with and so on. And over the last decade or so, phonological awareness has really, really hit you know, the, the, the foreground. And I'm so happy about that. So that's great. That's the first piece of good news. The second piece of good news is that uh, with phonological awareness, it's actually easy to measure and it's easy to remediate. So that's, those are the two bits of good news that I want you to have in mind. We'll go into the definition though. And, and the definition basically is a, it's phonological awareness is a sensitivity to the sounds and sound patterns of spoken language spoken language. So you can bring that, you can break that down into being aware of the components of words, like syllables in words, you know, those beats when we speak, syllables in words, and sometimes the phonemes within those words. So the actual individual sounds within those syllables. 
Speech is incredibly rapid. It's incredibly rapid. And for the most part, it's unconscious. We don't analyze people's speech in a sort of phonological or even a phonemic way. But if you can do that, then that's going to give you a pretty good chance of mapping speech sounds onto symbols and vice versa, which in an alphabetic writing system is a really, really good first start on your, you know, first step on your, on your literacy journey. Cool. So you said, well, first you said it's an awareness to the kind of sounds within spoken language, emphasis on the spoken there. And you said it's really easy to measure and it's quite straightforward to remediate as well. So how, how do we, how would you measure phonological awareness then? Well, again, another piece of good news is that there are many phonological awareness tests standardized as well, normed tests that are free of charge that you can actually download from the internet. So if you're not doing it as a teacher, it's not because you can't, right? Because there's so much, there are so many resources that you can, that you can use right now to do that. So the way that you do it is usually through word games, you know, things like, um, how many syllables in this word? <laughs> Elephant. How many syllables in this word? Tiger. And so on. Or manipulating sounds in words, you know, say bat. Now say it again. Don't say b. What word have you got? And so on. So you can, you can gauge a person's skill in that area really, really easily. Cool. Give me a test, Lynn. <laughs> you want me to give you a phone? All right, here we go. We'll start really easy, okay? But there's a bit of a trap in here, okay? You ready, Ollie? Oh, no, I'm scared. Say Saturday. Saturday. Now say it again. Don't say sat. A day. Ooh, good stuff. Did you know that in Australia, right, because this is actually from the phonological awareness screening test by um, David Kilpatrick, did you know that uh, that Saturday in Australia – Kilpatrick actually had to change that word for Australians because what was happening is a lot of Australian children say sat day. So when you say, say Saturday and they'd go, they go sat day, you'd go, all right, take away sat and they'd go day. And you can't mark that wrong because that's how they say it. So <laughs> you've got to be, so there's, there's sensitivity on the teacher's part as well as on the student's part with phonological awareness. Do you want another one? Go on then. All right. Say sat. Sat. Now say it again. Don't say s. At. Beautiful. All right. Harder one. Say sat again. Sat. Now say it again, but instead of s, say b. Bat. Cool. And so it goes on like that. You change the medial vowel or you change the, um, the end uh, consonant or you take them. So it's about manipulating phonemes in words. And you can, you can get a really good gauge of whether a child is sort of tracking with what you normally can do at certain ages or whether they're not. And then the David Kilpatrick resource um, equipped for reading success actually has exercises like pages and pages of one minute exercises that you can do out loud just to bring a child's skill up that way. So it's really, you know, it's a, it's the good news is easy to assess, easy to remediate, doesn't take very much. It's, it's like children are almost, they're on the cusp of being able to do this. It's bringing something which is unconscious up to the conscious level. It's not like they have to learn new information. They already have developed their auditory system. It's just giving them a push to actually become conscious of the phonemes in words. And thankfully, yeah, it's not a hard task. It doesn't take a lot of expertise. That's cool. That's very cool and, and fun and fun as well. In terms of remediation, could you just give us one example of when you say, instead of saying this, say burr, and I am supposed to say bat, is there a common mistake a student would make there? And if so, how would you remediate it? Well, there are two things that you're looking for 
there are two things that you're looking for when you're working with the student to know that you have or that the student has improved in their ability to do it. The first thing is their automaticity. So it might, if I said, take away, put in B, and you take one, two, three, four, five, you know, <laughs> seconds to do that. I know that you're still really having to, you're not automatic on that. And I want you to be automatic on it because when you're automatic on it, it shows, it's showing me that you've built structures that will help you to process sounds in sequence, which, you know, will help you in an alphabetic language to, um, to derive a possible pronunciation for a word, right? So what I want is speed. I want automaticity and I want accuracy as well. So you will keep doing that. You will keep asking them to do that in greater and greater complexity. So there are things like, you know, if I said to you, say clap. Clap. Now say it again. Don't say all. Cap. Cool. So taking away that embedded consonant there, that second consonant in the initial cluster, much harder. So the exercises that you do, they go like that on a gradient, on a gradual, very gradual sort of uptick, if you like. And what that does is it just helps to, it helps to push children over that cusp of sequentially processing sounds in words, knowing the difference between sounds in words, becoming aware of the order of sounds in words. These are things that may to you, Ollie, seem very, very natural, but actually you would be astonished at how some children cannot, they, they absolutely cannot process that level of information consciously in words. So you bring it up to their conscious attention and it lays a great foundation. Cool. What's the example that w would only work in a Scottish accent? We'll see if it works with my Scottish accent. <laughs> I think I was going to say it, it was because I don't have the phoneme or, it's just O for me. There was a word with an A in it because now I'm looking at spelling. I've, I've forgotten what the word is because I, I discarded it because it wouldn't work. You know, it was like something like, say glass. Glass. Now say it again, take away or. Gas. Yeah, it doesn't work, right? But in, Scot in the Scottish accent, it does. It's gas, right? <laughs> so that's why I had to throw that one out. <laughs> Very good. Thinking quick on your feet, Lynn. Love it. Another part of phonological awareness is awareness of syllables. Just could we quickly cover an example with um, syllables for listeners? Yeah, syllables are, are much easier. <laughs> They're much easier to uh, to play with. So you've only got a couple of, of pages of exercises in the David Kilpatrick book, and, and rightly so. But it would be something, you know, like, um, uh, say, spaceship. Spaceship. Now say it again. Don't say space. Ship. Yeah. And then you can do it with, you know, words that aren't compound words, you know, like Saturday, although I wouldn't recommend that for Australians. That's it. That's it. Basically, just take away a syllable. Okay. We're not talking about manipulating syllables. Got it. Got it. Okay, cool. Part of phonological awareness, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, within it is kind of phonemic awareness. How is that different from phonological awareness and what is it? It's a really good question, and I had to draw myself a diagram <laughs> to figure it out. So I've, um, I've put that diagram in the book. I don't know how useful it is. Sometimes I look at the diagram and go, that's just the inner workings of my mind, and I'm not sure anybody else really appreciates it. So what I'll do is I'll actually take it back down to the morphemes, so the meaningful units within those two words, to give you an idea of, of both of those things. First of all, if you look at the word phonological, you've got well, phonological and phonemic, they both have, both have the same base, and that base is phone, meaning sound, right? So it's all, both of them are to do with sound. So we're nowhere further 
just yet. But if you look at the illogical part, like in archaeological or psychological, what that has to do with is the science of something or the theory of something or a system encompassing all the elements of a discipline, right? So phonological awareness is an awareness of how that system works. It's knowledge, it's conscious or unconscious knowledge of how it all fits together. So that's the phonological part. Then if you look at phonemic, again, it's to do with sound, we've got phone, but the em part is a word forming element that means the smallest possible linguistic unit of something. So we also have a grapheme and a lexeme, graphemes, phonemes, lexemes, right? So if we apply, apply that to the phone meaning, you've got the smallest possible unit of sound. So therefore it's within the system, it's a part of phonological awareness, but it's the smallest possible unit of sound. So you know when we were talking about take away k, put in b, we're doing phonemic awareness there. And that's the harder bit. Syllables are easier to perceive than phonemes. That's it. Great. And I uh, love, love you bringing in that uh, etymology as well, uh, Lynn. It really really highlights highlights it and it makes it more memorable. That's fantastic. Thank you. It's all very well and good if students can kind of say bat instead of sat, but how does that actually help them to read? Yeah, well, if you think about it logically, what we have is an alphabetic writing system. So we have these symbols and uh, the unique sequence of that symbols determines what the word is. The symbols aren't just there to tell you about sound. They're there for other things as well. The symbols are there for meaning. But as the initial driver of literacy instruction, it's a really, really good idea to go, if you look at these symbols and you attach them to a sound and put those together, what you're going to come up with is a possible pronunciation of what that whole word is. And that whole word might already be in your oral lexicon, which means you've started to learn how to read that word and to understand it, right? So, so it's, it's logical. It's, it's logical that you, to a novice, if you, if the sequence of letters have to be associated with sounds. Now, if you're having trouble sequencing sounds, telling the difference between sounds, if you're having trouble with all of that, you can't build your ability to process print as fast as other people. You're not building it as fast. You're not getting that crucial practice because you're still struggling with, well, what was that sound? And, and Or was it this one or that one? Or what was the order again? And, and so on. So it, you have a really good shot of becoming literate in an alphabetic language if you can perceive the sounds <laughs> that the letters are supposed to be uh, representing. That's, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, I love it. When I, when I was reading, <clears throat> reading your book and thinking about this, I was trying to link it to things I know from ideas such as cognitive load theory. And cognitive load theory tells us, amongst other things, that in order to learn something, we first need to be able to pay attention to it, to bring it into our, our working memory, right? And so, if within reading, we're trying to learn the connection between a sound, a phoneme, and a grapheme, the kind of letter representation of it, we need to be able to pay attention to both those things, just the grapheme, which is probably simple because the teacher is showing you what exactly those, that letter or those couple of letters. But you also need to be able to actually pay attention explicitly to the to the phoneme. And if you can't distinguish that phoneme from other sounds around it, then you're going to have a lot of trouble making the connection between the grapheme and the phoneme. So that made sense from that CLT perspective as well. Wow. Well summarized, Ollie. I think you should uh, start going on tour with me. It's a deal, Lynn. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's phonological awareness. What about this uh, this dangerous word, Lynn, this, da this dangerous word of phonics? <laughs> it's sad that it's dangerous, isn't it? I know. In some circles, you know, phonics is viewed 
as an entity. It's, it's viewed as a movement and therefore as an entity, as a thing, a movement, it can be blamed for all kinds of educational ills, which is a bit of a shame. You know, there's, and, and there's lots of, lots of myths out there that characterize this thing phonics as this, as this monster, <laughs> right? That, that does all these awful things. And it's also phonics and this phrase, the science of reading are often conflated as well, which is a bit sad too. So to bust all of that, I think what we need to do is go with the definition again. And, and that is all the phonics is, is a method amongst lots of other methods, right? But it is a method of imparting the relationship that symbols in an alphabetic writing system have to the sounds that words contain. That's it, right? It's just, it's how to associate the sounds with the symbols. That's all phonics is. It's all phonics is. And, you know, there's, there are many, many different approaches that you can call phonics. But if you're involving sound and symbol associations and what you're doing is phonics, that's all. It's neither bad nor good, <laughs> right? It's just that's what you're doing. Cool. Interesting. I want to follow up. You said often people conflate phonics with the science of reading. How would you differentiate those two just so people don't make that mistake? Well, again, phonics is a method of doing something, whereas I would say the science of reading is the, you know, the, the, the result of multiple, of converging sort of data from multiple disciplines as the result of millions of research dollars as to what constitutes best, best practice when it comes to uh, teaching children to read, what constitutes best practice when it comes to helping uh, children who have barriers to reading. That's, that's, that's what the, the science of reading is. And a lot of the time, if the phonics instruction initially had been high quality, then what you would get is, is a, a high population of children who can read. So that's where they become associated. But the science of reading is, is far more than just one method. And it's far more than just, uh, oh, yeah, just teach them the sounds and the symbols and everything will be okay. That's not what the science of reading is about at all. And actually, as you know, Ollie, the science of reading is a subset of this far bigger science. And that's the science of learning, which is, you know, I think where, where our nexus is. So it's, it's, I, I find it weird that the two are conflated, but they're conflated by people outside of that you know, of that, of that sort of the framework of how children learn, how children learn to read. They're, they're conflated in that it's a very common straw man argument to say, well, the science of reading, that's all about phonics. And as we know, phonics is not the only part of the story. Well, actually, we all know that. Right? <laughs> we totally all know that. And I, I have on social media actually said, I'll give a free copy, right, of my of reading for life to anyone. If you can find me a person who says phonics only. That's how you teach children to read, just phonics, nothing else. If you find me that person, they can have a copy. And in fact, I'll get Ollie Lovell to sign it as well. That's that's how committed I am, you know, to this idea that there's nobody that does that. Nobody says that. So, you know, I'm just stop that. Lynn, you mentioned different types of phonics. And in your book you talk about synthetic, analytic, and embedded phonics. What are the differences between these and what do people need to know about them? Yeah, you, you can, you know, again, not all phonics is created equal, if you like. So uh, we start with that big, that big idea, associations between sounds and symbols. Anything that goes into that is phonics. So that's absolutely great. But then you've got synthetic phonics, which, you know, the teacher is like, I'll show you a letter of the alphabet and I'm going to get you to associate a sound with that. Or I'm going to say a sound and what I want is for you to write down that letter of the alphabet. So you can go from speech to print and print to speech. But what synthetic phonics does is it doesn't just do this in isolation. What it does 
is it says, this is how you put those symbols together to create words. So you synthesize <laughs> this information, you know, this pairing of sound and symbol, you, you synthesize that to create words, you know, so like this is a, and this is um, put them together, say it slow, um, say it fast, um, right? That's synthetic phonics. That's all that is. And Siegfried Engelman's Teach Your Child to Read in 100 Easy Lessons is a perfect example of synthetic phonics. And actually, he puts phonological awareness exercises into that. And we'll, we'll talk a bit about Engelman. He, he'll keep coming up because I know you you ask for, you know, heroes and in, in, in that sort of thing. And I think Siegfried Engelman is kind of at the top of my, uh, the apex of the people that I, I really admire in this space. So that's synthetic phonics. And if it's systematic, so there's another adjective here, right? If it's systematic synthetic phonics, and what that is, is you're doing it in a specific order, no matter who's in front of you, you're doing it in a specific order and you're making sure that you leave no gaps and you're checking for understanding as you go along. That's your system. And you're helping people catch up and you've got ways of figuring out who's catching up and who isn't and why. This is all a good synthetic phonics system, right? And that's when you're teaching a large class. You know where the gaps are. Nothing is left to chance. That's the systematic part. And logically, why wouldn't you? <laughs> why wouldn't you want a framework, a system, you know, points along the way where you can check for understanding? Like it defies logic to want to do something as complex as this with these individual humans in, in a haphazard way, which brings me on to analytic phonics. So analytic phonics is another approach. It's another way of trying to get children to remember the sound symbol associations of their, of, of their writing system. And it goes, it goes from a different perspective. It, it, it sort of goes like this. I'm going to give you some whole words here. And those whole words are chosen according to all sorts of variables, like, you know, things like the letters and sounds that are in your name. Now, 30 kids, okay, there's a lot of letters and sounds in those names, right? So we, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're just going to pick words starting with your name and then sort of randomly from the books that you're reading and so on. And what we're going to do is we're going to analyze those words because it's my mistaken theory that you're only going to pay attention to things that I think you're interested in. Actually, children are interested in and curious about language. It's one of the things we're kind of wired to be curious about. So you don't have to, you don't have to attempt to be that engaging, right? You can, you can actually use a system rather than these are the things that I think you're fleetingly interested in today. That's just, it's too much work. But anyway, back to that. So we're going to analyze these words. So we'll start with holes, not parts. And hopefully you can intuit the parts from those whole, hopefully you can build schemas that will, you know, allow you to see how the system works, but I'm not actually really ever going to tell you in any sort of sequence how the system works. So it's easy for a student to get lost in that. And not only that, it's easy for a teacher to get lost in that. That's the other thing, because my, my students now are teachers. Yeah. And they get lost if they, if, you know, if they have to do something as complex as teaching reading without a system. It's, it's really hard not to be systematic. So also in my experience, analytic phonics is associated with unacceptably high levels of instructional casualties. And those, the children that are finding it difficult to acquire literacy are the ones I'm really, really interested in. And you'll find, or I've, I've found over the years, and this has been borne out by, you know, the, the reports of many people in my position 
that uh, the analytic phonics is associated with an unacceptably high casualty rate. So yeah, I'm not a fan. You need a system. This is a, the writing system is a system. <laughs> so teach it according to that system, not, not some random, you know, let's look at what you might be interested in when you're five. Like it's not, not a great thing to base your system on. And then, you know, if we're going to go from good to bad to ugly, there's embedded phonics or, or what, what I like to call alt phonics or fake phonics or as Emily Hamford, who, you know, one of, one of my, one of the emerging heroes in this, uh, in this scene right now is she coined the phonics patch, right? So the phonics patch is like, it's a nod to requests to it, to incorporate phonics into teaching resources and lots of savvy publishers and authors of sprinkle phonics, you know, a little bit of exercises on sounds and symbols and then they'll tick the phonics box and they'll go yes we were doing phonics and, and but actually we're just going to continue with our ideologically driven approach to the detriment of you know millions of people but they carry on regardless so that, that's what i mean by embedding so those are those three types and of course systematic is is um more most helpful to teachers and students got it so if we imagine kind of a parent who opens a book with a young young child and they're reading the words along with them, that could kind of take one of two paths, I guess. One could be if they're helping this, if they're not actually getting the student to pay attention, the young person to pay attention to the words and they're pointing at pictures and getting them to guess, right? Which we would call more of a whole language approach. Tell me if I'm wrong there. So, that's that's the kind of, we're not actually even looking at the words or focusing on the words as a first point of call where we're guessing, maybe we're using the first letter to guess, but we're looking at the pictures and trying to infer what the story is. So, that's whole language. That's that's pretty dangerous because, again, back to that CLT idea, the attention is not on the words. So, they're going to struggle to make connections between the words or the printed letters, the sounds, and therefore be able to derive that meaning. But if the parent is actually helping the young person focus on the words and sound them out, that's probably an analytic phonics approach because there's not necessarily a structure in when and where they're being introduced to which phonemes and graphemes, but they are being introduced to the sounds and the, the, the parents helping them sound out. Am, am I right there with that, Lynn? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're introducing them to the technique of sequentially processing the, the, the sequence, you know, the, the, the letters in a word, which is a really, really good idea because not only does that help with reading, but it also helps to store those words in long-term memory. You've got to go, you've got to see all the bits of the word if you're going to have a chance to spell that word. And this is, you know, the greatest bone of contention right now is that I, I know that this book is called Reading for Life, but actually we need to focus on writing, which could be the subject of a completely different podcast. But the point is that we, with so much focus on early reading, it's sometimes neglected that writing is even harder. And if you don't get children into the habit of sequentially processing every letter, because that's what good readers do, right? Saccadic eye studies have shown that we alight, that we fixate on all of the letters in every word when we're reading. If we don't get children to develop that habit very young, what that also does is it stops them being able to retrieve that word from long-term memory when they're spelling. So their automaticity in writing becomes impaired too. So every time you get a child to look away, search for that picture, picture power, you know, all that sort of stuff, or use your imagination. What could this word be? Every time you're doing that, you're robbing them, you're robbing them of an opportunity to place to start to do this thing called orthographic mapping, which is the process by which we store words in long-term memory for instant effortless retrieval, instant effortless recognition. That's where we want them to be. 
right? 100%. So just trying to get my head around that analytic phonics definition, could a parent say, oh, I'm using analytic phonics because they're reading books with, a, with their child and they're sounding out the, the words? Yeah, a, good par- a parent could say that. And, um, you know, uh, absolutely. What's important, though, unless it's a homeschooling parent and then the homeschooling parent ought to have some, you know, good training. But what's important is, is what system the school is using. So, yeah, if a parent is saying, as we're reading, make sure that you look at all the letters and try to attach sounds to them and come to a possible pronunciation. Well, yeah, that's analytic phonics. And actually, in terms of learning to read, it, a lot of this is done through self-teaching. But if you don't show children how to synthesize in the first place, how to put those bits together, some of them won't pick up reading with the rapidity that you need to pick up reading to keep up with the curriculum. Some kids need very little. Some, And this is, this is the whole scandal of it, right? There's quite a large amount of children that will learn to read no matter what you do. Because some brains, and actually the majority of brains, are kind of primed for that. They're kind of ready to get in to print. You know, like I, I'm, I'm an example of that. I don't remember ever being taught. I was reading when I was three. Like, you know, it was, it was just something that came naturally. I can't park my car straight, right? I can't count that well, okay? Because that's the way my brain set up. My, my brain was set up to, to read. I didn't have to do phonics, analytic, embedded, whatever. I didn't have to do any of that, right? Lucky for me, okay? But what that does is that that shows anyone who did, who was my teacher, it might have said, you know, might have shown that they were successful in what they did. No, they weren't. It was my brain, right? <laughs> so, the sad part about all of this is that no matter what method you're using, some, some children will learn to read, but it's the ones that don't, that are time and time again served best by a synthetic, systematic approach to this. That's all. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Linstone stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, then why not consider becoming a patron of the EHBR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, they receive a summary each month of the key takeaways of the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for that key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary will include a summary of the all-important Big Six, or Super Six, as Lynn called them in today's podcast, of literacy instruction. Oral language, phonological awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. It will also cover some of Lynn's tips from each of these key six areas of instruction, as well as additional notes from the podcast about key characters within literacy instruction, and I'll even include some summary notes about some of the key reports that have come out on literacy instruction over the ages. Reports like the Snow Report, the National Reading Panel, and the Rose Report. So, if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the EWR podcast, and if you would like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as $1 per month or the recommended donation of $5 per month. This is a whole lot of value and a warm, fuzzy feeling for only the price of a cup of coffee per month. Jump onto patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the Eat Through Life podcast with Lynn Stone. Thanks, Lynn. I, I've been, I've, I've found that really helpful and I'm sure listeners will as well to really understand what we mean by synthetic 
what we mean by systematic and also why analytic and um, embedded approaches are the, what did you say, the, the bad and the ugly respectively. <laughs> One final question on phonics, Lynn. I was really interested in figure 4.3 on page 22 of your book because it actually, you know, people have heard about phonics. I've heard about hopefully systematic synthetic phonics and there's quite a few programs out there. And I've heard of a bunch of these names like Mini Lit, Little Learners Love Literacy, um, Read Write Inc, Jolly Phonics, etc. But I'm sure a lot of people are trying to work out what's the difference between these. And the thing I love about this table is it actually shows you one of the key differences, which may or may not matter that much. I don't know. It would be interesting to hear your thoughts. But that one of those key differences is the order in which they actually introduce the, the symbols, the, the first 10 symbols or the first 10 maybe graphemes. I don't know. Tell me, correct me if I'm wrong there. Yeah, phoneme grapheme correspondences, yeah. Got it. GPCs. <laughs> love it. In each of these programs. So... One starts with, you know, A, C, D, F, G, O, S, Q, U, B, and then E. And the next one is P, B, T, D, K, G. Don't know how to sound those ones out because I haven't been taught phonics. <laughs> can, can you tell us, does this matter if introduction kind of matter? And, and is there one that makes more sense to you or less sense to you? I'm just really quite interested in, in the fact that these programs have chosen to introduce them in diff different orders and the rationale behind these decisions. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good question. And it's one that comes up a lot, Ollie. I mean, like I, I see, I, I watch what teachers say on social media and I receive lots of emails from teachers. And of course, during the course of um, my training, I receive uh, lots of questions. And one of the main questions on uh, from teachers just, just starting out and also from school systems is, okay, I need to use a systematic approach. Which system? How much bang for my buck am I going to get with, with all of these systems? And there's a lot of anguish about, oh, am I doing it in the right order and that sort of thing. So what I wanted to say was, well, not really. I mean, here's the thing. What, what's really important is consistency. And it's not just consistency day to day in your classroom, but it's actually consistency across grade levels. So your school has got to be consistent with this as well and, and not to not leave any gaps. The gaps are the bad bits, right? So you got you got to cover, you know, that that range in a good enough time frame across grade levels because you don't learn to read in one year. You don't learn to read and write. You don't come to literacy in just one year. It's got to be across grade levels. So the most important thing with introduction of sound symbol correspondences is consistency. So you'll see that some of the programs are very, very different. And there, there's, a there's a rationale for that. And that rationale is sound as long as you are consistent with the meta language, you know, that you're using and consistent with, um, with the system and making sure that you're checking all the way. It, are they keeping up? If they're not keeping up, why not? And so on. Having said that, you've also got Doug Carnine. He worked at the University of Oregon sort of alongside Siegfried Engelman, who's who's come up again, right? But Doug Carnine, he came up with this thing called the Carnine sequence, where he said, well, basically, if you're going to teach this stuff to kids, it might be a good idea to start with, sim if you're looking at symbols, to start with symbols that are dissimilar. Because if you introduce B and D in the same day, what's going to happen is because they're so visually similar, you are going to get some children that can't differentiate them. And then they're going to have to use their cognitive real estate, if you like, to try differentiating them. So at first, for novices, make them dissimilar. That's really good advice, right? Also, though, with sounds, make them dissimilar at first. So don't introduce M mm and N, mm, right? The letter M and the letter N 
in the same breath. It's, it, they're too similar, right? They're both nasal consonants and they're, they're, they're almost the same. Very hard to distinguish, especially for novices who are still building their phonological awareness as well. So great advice again. And then he also said, so when you are introducing these correspondences, a really good idea at the, at the start is to kind of populate that the, those beginning correspondences with phonemes that you can hang on to, you know, like mm and ah, because what that does is it facilitates that synthesis. So instead of, you know, t and b, which you say in one unit of time and it's gone, with mm and ah, you can hang on and, and you know, you can connect those sounds into one another and blend them together to form words. And that's, that's the basis of synthetic phonics. And I think he had really, really good ideas. And that's borne out by research. So actually in the book, there is the entire Carnine sequence, the, the, the way that, you know, through many, many projects, they, they, he looked at what the best order is for him with those tenets in mind. So it's all there. Very interesting. And none of the phonics programs that you've listed use the exact Carnine sequence, but some are definitely much more similar than others. Yeah. Our listeners can check that out on page 22. Absolutely. And I'd, I'd like to interject as well that um, I think what people should know and what, what, what people should uh, watch out for is that there are now sufficient amounts of phonics programs on the market. We don't need to reinvent this. It, it's, uh, in my view, and I could be wrong, right? Because, you know, this is my opinion caveat here, opinion caveat, right? But in my view, we've kind of done that. It's been done. And there's no need to invent another phonics program. So what's out there is sufficient. But what you got to do, you can't, you shouldn't change horses, you know, <laughs> mid race, right? You got to stick with that one and get to the end of that one. So things like Read Write Inc., Little Learners Love Literacy. You know, you mentioned all of those. They say, okay, these are for the first two to three years of school. After that, well, you shouldn't have to use this program anymore because. You can consider it done if you go, you know, through those steps and give sufficient practice and sufficient catch up and so on. So, yeah, there's no point in reinventing phonics. It's, it's, it's been done. Got it. Good advice, Lynn. So we've covered oral language, phonological awareness, phonics. The next one in the big six is fluency. How is fluency developed, Lynn? Well, it's at this point within those sort of pillars of literacy, right, that, that you're actually going beyond phonological awareness, oral language, you're going beyond phonics, and you're getting into that, that, that space that's now destination rather than a journey. So it's not so much of a question of how do you teach it, but what are the components that lead to this and what are the consequences of being this, right? <laughs> or having this, you know, fluency, vocabulary comprehension. These are, these are, these are destinations, right? So you can practice your ability to, to read fluently in a number of ways. And, and I think it come, for me it, and, and the students I work with, it comes down to three basic tenets, which is practice. And, you know, you've got to practice doing this. It's not something that comes naturally to some people. And also, another caveat here is that with fluency, there are some people who don't read out loud fluently, who actually, for whatever reason it is, don't like to do it don't want to do it or, or, or can't do it that well, but can read perfectly fluently in their heads. So oral reading fluency measures can only ever be a proxy for what children can actually do. And, and I, I issue that warning because I do see, again, on social media, more in the US, 
than in Australia, but Australia does follow US trends whether you like it or not, right? It sometimes happens. But I'm seeing in report cards or in uh, individual learning plans now, I'm seeing targets and goals being they have to read this many words per minute to reach this goal. And that's an oral reading fluency goal. And, and, and I have to strongly advise against that, against making that a goal. It's something that comes from practice, persistence, right? So you've got to, it's hard at first. It's actually really hard. If you persist, you will improve your fluency. And it also comes from patience. Fluency does not occur overnight. And trying to rush children into this so-called words per minute zone, all that does for an unacceptably high number of children is create anxiety around reading. And once you're anxious, right, then all sorts of chemical reactions will happen. Again, not a neuroscientist, but, you know, in your brain, you, you, you'll start your fight or flight response. And what that does is it builds up over time into emotional baggage around reading. So be very careful about fluency. Fluency is just a proxy measure and, and it's a nice thing to achieve. But sometimes if you make that the only goal or you make that one of the major goals, you're going to lose people on this journey as well. You're not going to take them along with you. So yeah, but anyway, you can assess fluency. You can look at how quickly someone reads something, how accurately someone reads something, and you can also assess their prosody. So that is how their voice goes up and down in relation to what they're reading. The most prosodic readers in society are the ones like the newsreaders. You know how a newsreader will sit there in their studio and they've got to, from an auto cue, read as rapidly as they speak. And they've got to read it in a way that is easy to hear. Those are the prosodic readers. So they're on that end of the spectrum. And then you, we sit somewhere, you know, on that spectrum or on that continuum. And some people don't move very far along that continuum. It doesn't mean that they're not comprehending what they read. So it's only ever a proxy measure. So yeah, there's accuracy, speed, and prosody. And you can practice all of those things and you can make improvements. But like anything, in literacy, anything basically that's biologically secondary, sometimes there are very, very large major barriers to that that may make it so that it's not the best use of energy or time to try and improve those things incrementally. Fluency comes into that. There, there are some children and there are some adults that don't read fluently. Mm, interesting. You mean don't read fluently out loud? Yeah, out loud and, and are perfectly perfectly fluent readers with comprehension in their heads. <laughs> so you can't measure, you can't really measure. That's only a proxy, only ever a proxy. So making it a goal is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Is speed reading a thing? <laughs> Some people can read fast. <laughs> it's true. But when you say speed reading, are you talking about those like those programs and those books that go, I'm going to teach you to digest the Bible in 30 seconds or, or I'm really exaggerating now, but yeah, in a nutshell. No. Why not? Well, everybody's got a rate at which they can process information and you need to process information at your rate. So you might be really fast. You might have very, very high processing speed, in which case, if you practice reading really, really fast, you're probably going to understand most of what you're reading. I doubt you'll be able to deeply comprehend everything that you're reading, even if you have high processing speed. The thing about, and in, in the book, I do talk about processing speed and I talk about working memory talk about rapid automatized naming. These are all things that are very difficult to adjust. So your processing speed is your processing speed. What we can do is adjust the environment. We can adjust the, you know, the, the, the teaching and learning environment so that even people who are impaired in these areas can in fact 
make progress and, and, and become increase, increasingly automatic and increasingly strategic when it comes to literacy. Mm, that's good. And I think, yeah, I think there is often a real overemphasis on reading speed because it's not, it's not how much you get through, it's how much you get out of your readings. For example, I've been reading a, um, I've been doing a real deep dive into primary numeracy in the last few days and I've spent around 12 hours reading this really fantastic textbook, just really diving super deep. And I just calculated over those 12 or so hours, I've, I've only got through 72 pages. And that's because what I'm doing with that content is I'm making notes, I'm making flashcards, I'm, I'm really making sure that it's getting learnt and mastered. And so, you know, no speed reading there, 72 pages in, in 12 hours, but hopefully I'd like to think lots of learning going on. So, that's, I guess, another thing to think about in terms of the, the fluency debate. And another thing that uh, that's interesting to hear that some schools are kind of reporting word per minute goals, as well as kind of being blocked by that potential, you know, challenges for some individuals to reach that out loud, just despite what may be going on internally. It also really emphasizes that incorrect thing, because surely we want to be emphasizing prosody in terms of re- reading fluency. And even if someone reads in a really deliberate way, but that's quite meaningful, that's going to be a lot more impactful than what I've seen when I've taken literacy classes where kids actually think that it's impressive to read fast and that you have to say, hold on, slow down, you know, pause at the full stops and pause a little bit at the commas and things like that. So, yeah, really interesting to hear about that. Yeah, it's, it's a quantity, not quality approach. And, and any, I, I think anything in education, has to, you have to go from a, a quality approach. It, on the other side, there's, there's writing as well. So many children have this idea that, look, I'm just going to do two pages because two pages is what's required of me. And it's two pages of gobbledygook. When actually what we have found is that if you teach children to write good sentences, highly structured good quality sentences and then link them to other sentences, you're not going to churn through as many pages, but boy, (laughs) is your reader going to be delighted? And along the way, you might even learn the subject (laughs) that's at hand, you know. So, I think there's still a very, very large trend, a very worrying trend to do with a quantity approach rather than a quality one. So, again, it's my job to try and shift the focus over to, well, what does quality look and sound like? And it's not words per minute. Mm. Love it. Next idea, vocabulary. So, we know, we do know that explicit instruction of words and when they're embedded in meaningful context is really valuable. And we learned this, you know, through in lots of ways, but listen to the podcast will be familiar with my previous episode with Margaret McCown on this topic. And we also know that, for example, domain immersion, you know, looking at a specific topic for an extended period of time can also be really helpful to this end too. And, and Don Hirsch particularly spoke about that. But what's the role of reading in building vocabulary and what are the prerequisites for reading to be an effective tool for for vocabulary acquisition, Lynn? Yeah, I I actually, this was one of the turning points for me. This was one, uh, sort of thinking about this and reading about this was one of the ways in which I had, you know, I I was quite successful with the students that I worked with from the get-go because I had a linguistics degree and it's really easy to do that. But I didn't know why. But when I, when I examined this question, this is one of the turning points where I went, oh, I see, right? I see why this is successful and this is not successful. So it sort of goes like this. It's an exercise in logic, right? And, and you need to examine it carefully because you, you might never conclude what's very, very obvious about this if you don't examine this carefully. It goes like this, right? We'll take it from the viewpoint that a child 
the two children, child, child A and child B, right? Now, child A is encouraged to use contextual clues or picture clues, you know, like the three cueing system. What does the picture say? What's the first letter? What would make sense here? Go back and reread it. Have a running go, you know, all of those things that, that say don't sequentially process the letters in that unfamiliar word. So, so you've got that, you've got that one, right? You've got child A and then you've got child B and child B has learned the alphabetic code and is being trained to process the sequence of letters in an unfamiliar word via the sounds that those letters normally represent. So you've got those two, right? Now, what happens is that when they come to an unfamiliar word, and let's say, let's say that the sentence is something like, Animals who hunt their prey are called predatory animals, right? And the unfamiliar word is predatory, right? So child A is taught not to look at the sequence of letters, right? What they're taught to do is, is search within their lexicon. They have to look within what, what they already know and search for a word that's already there. Even if they look at a picture, they're going to have to know the name of the thing in that picture, right? But it's got to already be in there. So they look at the first letter and they scan all the P words that might fit, you know, they're like precious, pretty, proper, powerful, you know, or they look at the picture and like shrug, it's very difficult to draw an adjective, right? And they skip it and they reread and they ask for help because the word isn't there and they've got nothing else to draw on. So very little new information goes in, very no new entry is formed. They've just they've they've skipped it because it's not already there. Or they've picked something else that's unrelated, like they they start to call them panther animals or something because that seems to fit. Yeah, yeah, or pretty. You know, do you know what I mean? Or can you just tell me what this word is? Which is fine, but you're not developing. You're not building your own word attack, right? Your ability to process unfamiliar words. You're not processing it if you're looking away from it. But also, if you do successfully guess that. That word has is already there. It's already in your lexicon. So you're not. There's no new vocabulary going in. Whereas child B, they sound out the word predatory. They arrive at a possible pronunciation. So they might say predatory. They might say predatory. I don't know, right? But what we know is that this word that wasn't previously in their lexicon is preceded by animals who hunt their prey. And they begin to make a semantic connection with the word predatory because they're thinking, they're now thinking of, they've got enough sort of, again, cognitive real estate to go, ah, it's probably this word that I think is predatory, I think it's pronounced like that, is about hunting and prey. And that's how you build vocabulary from reading. And, you know, like if you've ever had the experience of like having read a word and arriving at a pronunciation and fully understanding what that word means because of the context around that word, but then actually laughing to yourself when you hear someone else saying it. Like, you know, I used to think I lived near Woolamulu. Apparently I don't. I know what Woolamulu meant, but until someone else had said it, I only had the meaning there and I could read it, but I couldn't pronounce it. Or, you know, I, I still actually say Coachella instead of Coachella. I think it's Coachella. And I say David Bowie, right? Even though you're not supposed to pronounce it like that, but I know what they mean, right? Because I've built my vocabulary through reading. But if you're guessing, looking away, you're not doing that. If you're connecting to words that are already there, nothing new is going in. The only way you're building your vocabulary is by hearing words. Actually, we build our vocabularies through reading. That's how we be achieve academic success. So that exercise in logic for me was, was, was a turning point, was, okay, I see why I have to be really vocal about denying children opportunities to build these things in their brains. Hmm. 
That is, yeah, it's super important. So that was the the fifth of the super six. The sixth of the super six, Lynn, is comprehension. What's the most important thing for, for teachers to know about comprehension? It's back down to the journey and the destination thing, right? So it's it's not a journey where you, I mean, you can you can take comprehension and you can define it. You can you can say comprehension consists of all of these components. It consists of uh, the ability to understand literal and inferential meaning in a written text. That's reading comprehension, right? And that can be further broken down into, well, it's it's about being able to predict what's going to happen next. It's about to be able to recall facts. It's about being able to make conclusions. And, and you can test all of those, but you can't particularly explicitly teach them in the absence of the ability to decode the words on the page. If you don't know what the words are saying, no comprehension strategy in the world is strong enough (laughs) to make up for that, right? So from a clinical perspective, also there's very few people that ever approach us at Lifelong Literacy with the desire to increase a child's reading comprehension. What parents recognize is that the children can't decode and that's what we have to fix. And once we fix that, then the reading comprehension, it becomes easier for them to understand what they read. Of course, there are ways to question the author, like you know, you've done in, in your podcast and Margaret McCown has talked about. And that's, those are really strong, specific, uh, important ways to go about English literature, where we analyze text in effective ways. But those decontextualized skills that so much instructional time in primary school um, is used for is actually a waste of student teacher and student time because you can't teach comprehension in a silo, (laughs) you know? So you can, again, you can define it, but teaching it actually relies on the precursors, oral language, phonological awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary. (laughs) There are, of course, some children who will have difficulties comprehending, not just what they read, but what they hear as well. It's a roundabout 1% of the population. And for those children who have speech language disorders like that, that actually takes a highly skilled, highly trained practitioner to try and bring about a greater level of uh, receptive and expressive language. That's a a specialized area. And it's it's something that if teachers suspect is happening with children, then that's a a red flag and, a, and a, a trigger for referral to someone who's specifically trained in that. It shouldn't be the core driver of your tier one literacy instruction. Mm. Thanks, Lynn. So there you were talking about some of the underlying processes of comprehension. I'd love to step down to an even greater level of depth or detail now to talk about another underlying process, which is something you talk about in the book. So in the book, you talk about different types of memory, working memory, long-term memory, executive function, things like that. But you also talk about this thing, RAN, rapid automatized naming, which I hadn't heard of before. Could you explain this to, to me and listeners? Yeah. Well, look, if you've, if you've ever had a child in your class and they had a, a cognitive assessment a battery of cognitive assessments, then um, from an educational psychologist, for instance, if you look into the report, you'll find RAN tests, you'll find tests of rapid, rapid automatized naming, and it's the, the ability to name sequences of objects or sequences of letters or sequences of numbers and how fast uh, people can do that from memory and so on. So there are various tests. How fast can you sequentially you know, recite back these various sequences? And what that does, it's, it's quite heavily correlated with progress in reading. 
So knowing somebody's rapid automatized naming score will actually help you to figure out what your expectations should be in terms of response to intervention. So somebody with high phonological awareness but low RAN will progress in a different way than somebody with high phonological awareness and high RAN, right? So you can calibrate all of these different areas and get a good picture of the learning profile of, of that child. That's all that RAN is. Again, RAN became very popular, I think, with the work of Marianne Wolfe. She talked about rapid automatized naming. And I, and I love, I've heard her speak quite a lot. She's the author of uh, Proust and the Squid, amongst other books. And she says, you can't change the RAN. <laughs> Sorry, Marianne, if, if, if you're listening to that, and that's not how you sound, is it? But anyway, right? You can't. The ability to do that is, is something that's basically fixed. So what you have to do is adjust your instruction. You have to make sure that even that low RAN will not impact. And that kind of leads into this whole other part of the book about snake oil. And there are people who sell, there are vendors who will, will sell all sorts of computer games and, and, and books and so on to do with increasing working memory, RAN, processing speed, and so on. And, and it's just all bunk. It's just all bunk. So I think it's important to talk about what that is and what can and can't be changed around it. Mm. Great advice, Lynn. Another part of your book that I really liked was how you kind of went into the history, so the main players and, and some of the events around reading and, and what's often termed the reading wars. And from page 50 to 63, a significant portion of the book, you kind of have a, a massive table of the who's who of the major plays in, in reading. Now, we don't have time to go through all of these right now, but I did want to take the time to ask you today, who are some of your favourite characters uh, from the reading research and, and why are you a big fan of these researches in particular? And, you know, maybe you could pick a few that you even think are a little underappreciated. Yeah, um, I like that you've actually framed that question around this sort of this phrase, uh, favorite characters, because it almost is. It's it's like a it's like a story, isn't it? It's like it's a very intriguing story as well. It's it's got it's got all the elements of a great spy novel, you know, of of these these uh, these forces that are working against one another, and and all of this nefarious stuff happening, and these global effects that it has, and so on. So yeah, when I started, um, well, look, when I when I started reading about reading the research into reading, and that was actually a long time ago, the same names kept coming up. And again, good, bad, ugly, right? The same names would keep coming up. And, and I started to actually form pictures of them in my head. That's like, I guess that's how I organize information, you know? So I thought, gosh, I would love it if there was one central place where I could just read a bit about all of these names. And I looked and looked and there wasn't one. So I made one. So that's, that's what that part is all about. It's actually for me as well to go back to and, uh, and go, Oh, yeah, that's right. That's their major kind of contribution or not, you know, in, in, in this sphere. So. Look, my ultimate hero in this space, and I, I, there, are, there are many, many others, I, I, I love all of them, and a lot of them have been incredibly generous as well. When, when you, I wrote to most of these people, who, the, the ones who are still alive, and I, I wrote to them, and 90% and of them got back to me immediately and said, oh, yes, look, I'd, I'd love to help you out. And it, it's, just a, it's just a really, really gratifying exercise. But the biggest hero for me, my ultimate hero there, is, is Zig Engelman, Siegfried Engelman. And the reason I like him is because he didn't start out in education, you know, so therefore he has a perspective that wasn't particularly a product of whatever was trendy in teacher training at the time. So I feel a little bit akin to him because I didn't start out being teacher trained either. Not that there's anything wrong with that, right? But 
I, I get, you know, that, that that other perspective is sometimes helpful to perhaps suspend certain cognitive biases that are maybe drummed into in, in, to teachers in, in initial teaching education, especially more progressive models. Um, so his perspective was far more logical. And, and it actually came from a marketing background, right? So he was in advertising. And what he, what he discovered, what, what his job was, was how do I make children pay attention, right, to this advert? And how do I make them remember the slogans around this product? And how do I, you know, create a desire in children to get more of this, right? And then he expanded that out and, and, and thought, well, I could, we could probably expand that into education, to primary school education. I've figured out how to make children pay attention, remember stuff. <laughs> that's like, going, that's gold, right? And his rig, he was so rigorous and his success in personally instructing students was, was so large and training teachers to instruct students, you know, in, in highly effective ways. He would, became the author of like one of the world's, probably the world's longest running and most successful and, and, and uh, expansive over time project called Project Follow Through, where he went, do this in this sequence and uh, you're going to get the best results. And, and over many, many years, he showed consistently how to do that. And, and he did that. And the scandal of it was that it was mostly ignored. He was mostly ignored. People carried on doing business as usual in terms of all of the really awful theories about how children learn and how children learn to read. And so at, at one point, in, at, you know, at the end of his career, he basically bowed out and said he, he did a bit of ranting and I loved his rants as well. They were brilliant. I, I'm, I'm a fan of rants. Okay. I'm a rant fan. I admit it, right? So he did a bit of ranting and then he went, right, I'm off to Oregon and I'm just going to do oil paintings for the rest of my life because you, you know, I've given you everything that I could possibly give you that works and I've shown how it works. And if you're not going to take it, well, it's kind of on you now. I'm going to do my oil paintings, you know, but he was still incredibly generous as a mentor. So I, I wrote to him and, and he wrote back and we had a few conversations and I put a quote of his at the beginning of a chapter in one of the books and, um, you know, if you don't mind, I, th that's that's one that I want to read. Is is that okay, Ollie? Go on, Lee. Cool. All right. Well, what happened was I sent him a bunch of questions, and um, and I sent a few of these very generous mentors questions. You know, things like, how long have we definitively known? You know, what the components of reading are. Um, should we still be looking for uh, alternatives, or is there a particular condition that you're aware of that will actually impair reading no matter what you do? And are there any methods? that are detrimental to the process of teaching literacy? She asked him knowingly, right? Because there are, right? And like, do you think the subject of literacy acquisition will always be contentious or do you predict that we'll reach a consensus? You know, things like that. And he wrote back, he just wrote this back and this is Zig. This is, this is just him down to a T, the succinctness of this. He just wrote, Lynn, the quest is not to join a particular gang, but to achieve a particular goal. This goal is to teach kids to read the segment of the population that is most important is the segment that is currently not being taught effectively. The evidence of this failure is the performance of the kids. The evidence of how they have been screwed over, there's his ranty bit, right, which I enjoy. The evidence of how they have been screwed over is their performance. In the same way, the evidence that the program, teaching, intervention, or approach is effective is their performance. Certainly, there are questions of effectiveness and efficiency. Does your approach take more time to induce than an alternative that is equally effective? If so, the alternative wins. Does your approach address the full range of things children have to learn that any other approach covers? If not, the alternative wins. 
So teach it in less time with provisions for the full range of students and content, and you win, period. Step very far outside of this box, and you're wondering where you should not be in the land of Oz. <sighs> you know, and I just, I, I keep going back to that, that succinctness. That answer is just about every query, just about every query, and that's what Zig did. That's why he's my hero. <laughs> you know? That's what he could do. Love that. Yeah, it was a sobering response but one I continue to return to. So he's at the apex there. That's marvellous. I wonder what you win. Um, he was saying if you do these things, you win, but uh, it seems like you win your retirement and ability to do oil painting. But his work has stood the test of time. I guess that's what he's won and his programs are still being used today. One of the things I've been doing in this deep dive into primary numeracy has been reading through some of his maths direct instruction programs and they are just genius the way he's put that stuff together. Just to, you can read through it and you can see the learning that would be happening if, if students went through it. So, um, yeah, it's that nexus of that brain, that Siegfried Engelman brain, but also that different approach, that approach that came from a different field. The two of those together were incredibly powerful. And I think that's what makes him stand out. There are many others and many other mentors like Pamela Snow, like Lorraine Hammond here in Australia that I am so grateful to. There are people like Bob Sweet who was side by side with me during the the writing the, the entire project and he was he wrote you know he was the, the the sort of repository of all those stories of you know the Mary Clay story where she said well, we're just going to pay lip service to this we're not actually going to change the program that was old bob sweet that showed me where where to find all of that stuff and then we've got our very own Kerry Hempenstall as well here in Australia who has a massive database of just about every research article that's relevant to all of these different pillars and you can you can contact Kerry and he'll bring it up for you you know so we're very very lucky and there are countless heroes but those are the ones that spring to mind love it thanks Lynn now I've got a bone I've got a bone to pick with you Lynn because I'm a left-hander and I always felt pretty special being a left-hander until I came to this following excerpt in your book. Left-handed people comprise around 10% of the population. Despite popular opinion, there is little evidence that left-handed people differ in creative, spatial or artistic skills from right-handed people. They do, however, have more trouble with correct posture and pencil grip if not taught consistently from a very young age. Special care should be taken to show left-handers how to sit and position their pencils. I was at a conference the other day and uh, Lorraine Hammond, who you just mentioned, was watching me write actually. And she started laughing at me because I was holding my uh, notepad sideways and writing up the page. So perhaps the proof is in the pudding. But is it really true that I have no special creative, spatial, or, or artistic skills, Lynn? Because I was really holding on to that one. Ollie, look, you're definitely special. I think you've proven that beyond the shadow of a doubt, but it's not about your hemispheric dominance. All right. It, it doesn't determine that at all. You have lots of other factors that make you the special Ollie level that you are. However, yeah, the, your, your weird um, posture that was left at by Lorraine Hammond, cruelly so, but you know, what can you do? That's because your initial instruction didn't uh, allow for the fact that you were left-handed. And what you have to do with left-handed people from the very beginning is that you have to get their wrist below the baseline. Their wrist has to be below that line that they're writing on. And if you don't explicitly make that part of that curriculum, of that feedback loop, uh, then what you're going to do is, you know, your, your hook bend on with your, with your wrist or adjust your paper so that you're not smudging. 
unfortunately, Ollie, I, I know that you, you want to know how to remediate this. Well, look, you're in your 30s, all right? It's too late. How you hold your pencil is how you hold your pencil. You know that muscle memory is really strong. Don't waste your energy on it. Depressing, but uh, I think I can accept it, Lynn. Um, it is funny because if I try to write with my hand below the line, it just does not work at all. I feel like the most uncoordinated person. And if I write without my page completely on its side, I do end up smudging because your hand kind of has to be above the line so you're not smudging what you've just written. Yeah. It's a challenge anyway. It's too late for you. But Ollie, but Ollie if you ever do produce offspring and they inherit the left-handedness from you, you will know that you can set them onto a path of not having such an awkward experience by reading what I've written about that in the book, okay? I will. I'll, uh, I'll bring them along to your practice, Lynn, and you can show them how it's done. Little ollies everywhere. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> what a dream. Lynn, what advice would you give to your first-year teacher or, or tutor self? The advice would be get your master's and do a PhD. That, that would be my advice. You know, I come from a, a, a Scottish working class family and I was actually the first person in my family to get a degree. So in terms of social capital, when it comes to education, we didn't have a lot of it. There were nobody's footsteps um, for me to, to particularly follow in. And I didn't actually even know what a master's degree or a PhD was or what that meant after I got my linguistics degree. It was, it was never, ever indicated as something that I should be doing. And, and I could have, you know, I, I could have, would have, should have. No, I'm not doing that. But, you know, I, I fell into my working life and then I had a family and, you know, the, the time was never right. So so I would have said to myself, yeah, get, get that PhD because I think that if I had a master's or a PhD, then perhaps I could have been one of those people that influences initial teacher training. I could have been at that academic level. And that's where the major problem is. Academics in universities uh, rolling out the same old philosophically driven, ideologically driven initial teacher instruction. So it would, you know, with a, with a PhD, then I may have been able to influence that. And luckily, I've managed to have books published that go some way um, to doing that. But I also do understand that there is a certain prejudice uh, at the upper levels of this field against people that don't have a doctorate. And I suppose I've got to live with that. But yeah, my advice would be become an academic. Didn't know that existed. There you go. Speaking of books, what are your three favourite books on education, Lynn? At the risk of sounding evangelical, and as you know, I'm very uh, wary of cults and very wary of that sort of the brand, there is a book that I constantly refer to, and it's a book that's mandatory reading for everybody who works for me. And everyone, you know, so they all, they all have this copy. Everyone who works for me has, has a copy of this book, and they're directed to read it, and they're directed to refer to it, and I call it the Bible. But it's actually... Uh, the Pamela Snow and Caroline Bowen's book, Making Sense of Interventions for Children with Developmental Disorders. So not only is it hilarious, right? So it's so dryly written. There's so much humor throughout it. And I, throughout it, and I really like dry humor, as you may or may not have gleaned. But it's also the most up-to-date reference book on the planet for interventions for children who struggle with some form of, of language disorder. It's a book that you need to pick up and look into if you want to find out very quickly whether an intervention is snake oil and why it's snake oil and what isn't snake oil. And that's, it's really important in our field to know the difference. So that, that is, that's number one. That's the Bible. Then there's Teach Your Child to Read 100 Easy Lessons by Siegfried Engelman. In my view, if the principles within that were followed preschool and during school for novices, 
basically we'd be a very, very long way into eradicating illiteracy. So I've got copies of that in my office and I make sure that I distribute that as far and wide as I can possibly distribute it. It's almost the perfect text for this. After that, I'm just basically into authors. I try to read the complete works of authors that I fixate on at the time. So in uh, the, the academic field, it's Steven Pinker. He'd probably be at the top. I try to read everything by Pinker. You know, the language in- instinct really does it for me, but I do look at his other works as well. I keep coming back to Pinker. And if I, if I have to write an article or if I have to write a book, if I'm in that cycle, I will read Pinker while I'm doing it so that he... He's such a good influence on the way in which I write as well. And then, you know, and then, yeah, I try, I read biographies and, and I try to con- do the complete works of, like I say, authors that I fixate on. Oh, there you go. Quick question, because I've been, I really enjoy good biographies. Could you give us some bi- tips of um, biographies you'd really enjoyed? Well, actually, you see, here's the thing. It's, it's now, we're now getting into to my interest and I really, really like music. So a lot of the time I'll read the biographies of, pop stars and rock stars and so on. Tracy Thorne's biography, the name of which escapes me, is one of the ones that stands out. It's so, so beautiful. So she was the, the lead singer of Everything But The Girl. Her biography is just beautiful. I'll read everything to do with The Smiths, my favourite band. And lately I just read Bob Mortimer's biography and he's part of a comedy duo from the UK uh, called Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer. And his he suffered a heart attack and it, he goes through all of that beautifully. So... Yeah, those those are some recommendations there. We'll we'll get the Ollie Lovey Lovell story one day as well, I imagine. And yeah, maybe maybe even the film rights to that. Who would play you, Ollie? Yeah, maybe maybe in a dream world. <laughs> I mean, we'll uh, we'll see what happens. Who should people follow on Twitter for more good reading stuff? Well, apart from you, there's Pamela Snow because Pamela also very very. Ge- I don't know how she finds time for this, but she also writes a blog called The Snow Report that again, is one of those things that influence me and therefore I'm, I imagine would influence other people too because it's so well written. So following Pamela Snow on Twitter, you're always going to get links to her blog. Following Lorraine Hammond, really, really good idea. The work that she is doing, especially in the, um, you know, the first people's space is, is quite incredible. There's also organizations like the Reading League and Code Red Dyslexia Network. They're good to follow. And also there's, there's, a, there's someone who's come kind of onto the scene lately. Uh, and I don't know if anybody is following him, him at the moment, but he's kind of my translator for statistics because I'm not a researcher. So I can't read statistics very well. So when a, a research article comes out, he can translate it like that. He, he's really fast and really good at translating it. And he's a, a professor of psychology um, in the United States. His name's Michael Paff. And the other thing about him, apart from being a brilliant translator of all this, is that he is side-splittingly hilarious. He's side-splittingly hilarious when it comes to taking things down, you know, like Fontus and Pennell and, and, and all that sort of thing. So he's great to follow. Dr. Michael Paff is his name. Where can people get a bit more of Lynn Stone? <laughs> Where can all the masochists go, did you say? So, look, I don't know what people want, but now that the, the gates have been lifted and that we can travel about we can meet up at major conferences. So thank goodness there's lots of them happening. Um, I'll be at the Reading League in Syracuse in New York State in October. That's a 
conference not to be missed. It's it's one of the most sort of career affirming conferences that you can go to. The, the speaker lineup is always tip top and they vary their speaker lineup too, so that they never kind of repeat speakers. It's not like the same old circuit over and over again. The absolute best conference in Australia, I think in my, again, caveat, right? But the best conference in Australia, in the whole of Australia is the Dyslexia Spelled Foundation Conference that they hold in prep every two years if you can get to that i will always be there whether i whether i'm speaking or not because it's so it's such a superlative conference it's such a superlative meeting of minds to get me basically i've got i've got 23 online courses now goodness knows where they came from but you know i just started manufacturing courses so you can do those great big huge ones for 18 hours or two hour courses and i do moderate them in in real time the one way that you can't get more of me is via the phone. I, I never, ever answer my phone. I've decided that we live in a digital age where we can Zoom and we can email. There's no point if you don't. And this is, you know, take heart. Everyone who doesn't like speaking on the phone, you don't have to anymore. You absolutely. It's OK to say, no, I'm, I'm not talking to you on the phone. There are other ways. So you can never reach me by phone. And you know what sort of burden that's lifted off my shoulders? It's just wonderful. It's just, it's just lovely. I mean, I will answer the phone to my mum, Lorraine Hammond, you know, probably you, Ollie, on a good day. But that's it. That, so that, that's, how you, that's how you reach and don't reach me. <laughs> Got it. And last calls to action, things you'd like listeners to go away today and do, Lynn. Well, look, Ollie, here's the thing, right? I, I stopped giving out Christmas cards and birthday cards a few years ago because I honestly cannot think of things like calls to, <laughs> calls to action. And I can't think of things like how to wish someone a happy birthday. And I find it really difficult to, to even open emails with a greeting, right? I, I'm really, really bad at that. So, and, and I think we have such a wide audience that it's really hard to pinpoint, this is what you need to do next. If anything, you need to listen to more ERRR. You need to catch up on all of those episodes because that was, again, a turning point for me in my career. I'm not, I'm not kidding just having access to the thoughts and, and minds and works of all of these people in, in this arena in such an accessible way went a very, very long way to my professional development. So I'd say, yeah, do your ERRR backlog. How about that? Thanks, Lynn. That's definitely the best recommendation everyone's ever had. Best call to action at the end of any uh, Each Will podcast. All. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be number one in something. That's great. Thanks. <laughs> definitely. I definitely tell all guests that that is the uh, mandated answer from now on. Linstone, thank you so much for your time today. It's been, as always, a pleasure, both edifying and fun. Your book, Reading for Life, I really did enjoy it because I went into reading that book with a bit of an idea of some of these words, phonics, phonological awareness, things like that. I knew they were important. I'd heard about the big six, but I hadn't really done a deep dive. And your book really does bring all these ideas together in one place. It's very readable. It's a real page turner. It even kept me up one night till about one in the morning. It was that good. It's appropriate for, you know, parents and teachers and school leaders. Just the way it's written is really, really engaging. So, thanks for that. Thanks for taking us through a really deep dive, blow by blow through the the Super Six. The Super Six. Uh, you heard it here first, folks. The Super Six. Um, I'm sure listeners, you know, I'm really going to enjoy writing the summary for this podcast because I know that's going to consolidate uh, a lot of that knowledge for myself. Thanks for letting me down softly with the handwriting thing. Um, thanks for telling us about Siegfried Engelman and his fantastic work. And I think that is a body of work that should be celebrated more. Uh, and finally, thank you for the big up 
of the podcast, Lynn. Always appreciate that. And you know, we've 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 started to work together a little bit. We did the masterclass earlier on this year. It was a heap of fun. We had some great feedback, and I'm looking forward to to doing more stuff with you in future because I think you do, do a great job of translating this research to teachers and educators in a really accessible way. And it's a great model for lots of us communicating in education. Thank you. You're very kind. It was an enormous pleasure, Ollie. Take care. Thanks, Lynn. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Lynn Stone. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe to make sure you get all the updates from me about teaching and learning. That web address again is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you do have any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections about this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.